Uh, we're going to be looking in Isaiah chapter 42. I want to join with Brother Bill in welcoming you all here and also those who are watching from home. Uh, Isaiah chapter 42, God's servant for the coastline. God's servant for the coastlands. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. God's servant for the coastlands. He will mention this again in verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. coastlands. One of the great questions of Bible prophecy has always been, at least... Uh, as far as uh, my lifetime has been concerned, is you know, where do you find the United States in prophecy? I hear that uh, question a lot. Do we find the United States in Scripture? That's an honest question for us to ask since that is, of course, our nation. It's where we live. We wonder, well, what's going to happen? What role will we play? We see a lot in there about Israel, about places like Persia and Gog and Magog and uh, Turkey, all these other places, I, we, we see a lot of those. But where's the United States? And it's difficult to find that. I'm not going to tell you tonight that this is a passage that would specifically just refer to our own country because uh, the orientation of the Bible, you understand, is set in Israel. Israel is the hub. If you can imagine a wheel, then... All of the prophetic messages, all the messages, all the word that is given to us of Scripture is headquartered in Israel. Uh, when it talks about the lands of the north, it's what's north of Israel. When it talks about what's east, it's talking about what's east of there, what's west of there. Uh, and the hub is Israel. And the Bible is set and centered in that hub. If you will read from the Old King James, the passages that I have here are from the New King James, you would see that these words are not coastlands, but islands. Uh, Isaiah 42 and 12, let them give glory unto the Lord and declare His praise in the islands. Same Hebrew word is used in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 5. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. Uh, now, the, the word that was used, of course, could refer interchangeably to any place, whether it is uh, completely surrounded by water and is a small place, a place that we would generally think of as an island, uh, 
or a large place, much like what we would call a continent. After all, when you think about the United States, part of North America, we are, in fact, uh, surrounded by water. We got that little narrow isthmus, uh, Central America, going down South America then, but we're a great big island, but uh, we are still an island. But the area of the Gentiles, as they were divided, as they were divided by language, that's what Genesis chapter 10 was all about. That's discussing the aftermath of Babel and how God confused their languages. And the descendants of Japheth specifically are spoken of in Genesis chapter 10. And uh, the isles of the Gentiles, the coastlands, the areas then where these people uh, would settle. So it was not just any specific people, it was not just any specific nation, but it does refer to these far-flung reaches uh, from Israel where the Gentiles inhabited. Now, if you think about Jerusalem, if you think about Israel and where it's set, uh, you could think about the area to uh, its immediate uh, east. And uh, if you go east from Jerusalem and you're headed out into that vast area that Isaiah calls a wasteland. And he speaks of some of those villages there. Some of them would be in Saudi Arabia. Some of them uh, would be down in Edom, uh, further uh, down to the south in Saudi Arabia. But he's talking about these peoples who are over there. Gentiles as well. They were not Jewish people. Uh, they were the descendants of Esau in the case of the Edomites. The descendants of Ishmael, Abraham's other son, Ishmael. And the Ishmaelites. All of those people were in the wastelands. The coastland then of Israel wasn't very far away, but uh, even though it wasn't far from Jerusalem, uh, it was not a, a Jewish area. You remember when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, the Bible says he did not take them by the way of the sea. Because if he had done that, the Bible says, they would have seen war before they were ready. You see, the way of the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, was very well known. It uh, was then, it is today, a travel route between uh, Africa and, uh, and Europe. And they would just hug alongside the coastland and... They could have gone that way from Egypt and gone up into the promised land. And if they would have taken their time and camped out a little bit and maybe grilled some burgers or something, I mean, if they'd have, they could have taken their time and been there in less than a month. Uh, they spent 40 years making the trip. Well, you remember that story. It, it, it didn't take God long to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took them a long time to get Egypt out of Israel. They weren't ready. They had been raised in slavery. They weren't ready to assume their role as a sovereign nation. God had a work to do, and it would be a work of dealing with their disobedience and their rebellion and their resistance over and over and over again. You'd think that after a lifetime in slavery... They'd have been ready to do what God told them to do. They were not. They were not. But they didn't go the way of the sea. The way of the sea was inhabited by a group of people known as the Philistines or the Philistines. We know them well. 
You go a little bit further north and you run into the ancient city of Tyre, the Sidonians. We, we, we know them, uh, the Phoenicians, we know them very well too. So the coastland of Israel, as it would have been spoken of in the days of Isaiah, would have definitely been an area inhabited by Gentiles. And that's the point. You look in Matthew chapter 12, you'll see Jesus referring to this very passage. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, verse 18, Matthew 12. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory and in his name Gentiles will trust. God would draw attention, particular attention, we'll see that tonight in this text, to the fact that he was telling them this long before it happened. God was doing a work. He said, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. It reminds me of the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, who was crying out to God, How long, O Lord? I mean, he saw the approaching Assyrians. How long, O Lord? And basically Habakkuk's cry was, uh, uh, Lord, will, will you save us? How long will we cry and you will not hear? How long will we cry to you of violence, God, and, and you'll not save? And I've always loved God's response to Habakkuk. I, I can't wait to meet Habakkuk. I just want to, I've never met anybody named Habakkuk. I want to meet him. I can't wait. Uh, Habakkuk. Let me tell you something God said. I'm going to work a work in your days, though you, and you'll not believe it, though I told you. God's response to Habakkuk was, I'm, I'm doing something, but if I told you what it was, you wouldn't believe me. It's so amazing. It's just such an incredible thing. I, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. But then God went ahead and told him anyway. He said, you see the Assyrian army coming down against my people? You want me to do something about them? But God said, I've already done something. I brought them. I brought them. The Assyrian army was coming against Israel in the days of Habakkuk to bring judgment as instruments of God's judgment on the nation. God was already at work. He was working in Israel. He was working through Jesus. He, he told them before it ever happened, he told them what he was doing. Long before Jesus would come and the Gentiles would respond abundantly to his message. And you see that in the story of the Gospels, interwoven in it over and over and over again. You see the story, the Jews rejected. We're, we've been preaching on it in Mark chapter 4. You'll see it again and again. So it goes to the Gospel. The Jews would reject it. The Gentiles would receive it. God told them this was going to happen. And it's playing out. And it's been playing out ever since. And it will continue to play out. Until the time the Bible calls the, the times of the Gentiles would be fulfilled. You see, the Bible warns us of a day that would come when that story would change. And where one time it would be the Jewish hearts that were hardened against the gospel and the Gentiles' hearts that were wide open, it's going to swap, it's going to switch around. 
And the Gentiles will harden their hearts to the gospel. <laughs> and then comes that glorious day known as the rapture. And then God's got a plan for Israel. And that remnant is going to be called out and they'll believe. And that great question that Paul asked in the book of Romans when he said, If the falling away of Israel, casting away of Israel has brought salvation to the Gentiles, then how much more their fullness? What do you think is going to happen when they turn back to the Lord and they are restored? Oh, I'm glad you asked. I say that a lot. What's going to happen? Well, it's just the millennial reign of Christ. That's all that's going to happen. I mean, yeah, there's that little thing called the tribulation that's going to come in between. I'm sorry, I should have called that a little thing. Jesus didn't. Jesus said it's a time that has never been anything like it before. But the tribulation doesn't get the last word. God is going to preserve His people. Israel is going to be saved. They'll not just be uh, that standing army with no life in them. They'll have spiritual life in them. They'll assume their role. They'll fulfill the task that God had given them all along. But God had a plan for the Gentiles. And He told them about that plan before it ever happened. The long-awaited Messiah of Israel. The Messiah of Israel. was going to be gladly received by the Gentiles and rejected by his own. God had a servant. That servant is Jesus Christ. There's no doubt, no question whatsoever that Isaiah chapter 42 refers to Jesus. And though it was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, it could have just as easily been, uh, been written by an eyewitness. When you read the words of Isaiah, it was as if he had been following along and watching Jesus operate and see how he had worked and see what kind of person he was and how he would conduct himself. Isaiah wasn't coming up with this on his own, was he? The, the Holy Spirit of God, that's what uh, Simon Peter says, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah, Holy Spirit moved Isaiah. And the Holy Spirit is, was an eyewitness, still is an eyewitness of his majesty. He knew exactly what Jesus was to be. So long before Jesus was born, we were given Isaiah chapter 42 and the servant then to the people of the coastlands, the islands, people far away, the Gentiles. We'll see first of all then in verse 1, the character of the servant. Isaiah 42 and 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. We can almost hear the words of the Father speaking at His baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, long before that event, God spoke through Isaiah the prophet. 
This is the one in whom my soul delights. I am well pleased in him. I have put my spirit upon him. The Lord did not give him the spirit by measure, the Bible says. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Spring ahead with me for a moment to the work of Paul the Apostle, that great rabbi himself. Such a commentary on the work of God and the plan of God. And I mentioned it today in Ephesians chapter 2. Where he spoke of the status of the Gentiles in that time before Jesus came. These are ominous words. Powerful words, but ominous words. That at that time, he said, now remember, you were called Gentiles. You were called uncircumcision by that which is a circumcision made in the flesh, made by hand. You remember, he says, that at that time you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise. You were without God. You were without hope, he said, and without God in the world. Strangers, you did not know God. You were without God, you had no hope. Now some have made erroneous conclusions from that passage as if there was a vast host of people that God left and abandoned and they never had any chance to be saved. No, the reason why the Gentiles were without hope was because the witness to them was the Jewish people. And the Jewish people themselves had turned away from God. They were God's representative under the old covenant dispensation. They were the ones who were to witness to the Gentiles. They were the ones who were to carry that truth of God to them. But they weren't doing it. They didn't have it themselves. Jesus, in fact, would speak to that people. And what did he call them? Blind guides. Imagine a blind person being led by a blind man. Do you understand why Paul said you were without hope? They had no hope. At that time, you were strangers. We think then of all of the advantage that God gave to the Jews. And Paul, in fact, would ask that exact question in the book of Romans. What advantage then hath the Jew? And he answers it, much in every way. Almost in every way. But chiefly, unto them were committed the oracles of God. What advantage had the Jew? God gave them the prophets. God gave them a message. We could think about Jonah who was sent to Nineveh. (laughs) But there was one, Jonah and then Obadiah, a couple of others maybe that that had a primarily Gentile audience. But even then they got it from a Jewish preacher and he didn't want to go, you know, Jonah and Nineveh. What advantage had the Jew? Much every way. Because unto them were committed the oracles of God. The Gentiles got justice. He would bring forth justice to the Gentiles. The message would come to the people of the islands, the far-flung people, the the people of the coastlands, the, uh, the people in the areas of the Gentiles. My servant, my servant will go to them. I'll put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. They'd get the message. There's a nameless woman 
walking around the streets of gold tonight. That's another person I want to meet alongside Habakkuk. Uh, that was the woman that uh, Jesus referred to in a seemingly very harsh manner when he said to her, it is not fit, it's not right to take the children's food and give it to the dogs. You remember that? But that woman was a woman of faith, and she said something very astute. She wasn't offended by what Jesus said. In fact, she agreed with him. Yes, Lord, that's right. You don't take the children's food and set it before the dogs. You give it to the children first, right? But then when the children don't eat it, did your, anybody's kids ever not eat what you put in front of them besides mine? But when the kids don't eat it, what do you do? Then you feed it to the dog. If you look away twice... They might feed it to the dog for you. It's true, Lord. Oh, Jesus commended her face. She saw what was happening. She saw that Jesus was giving the food to the Jews, to the children. But the children wouldn't take it, wouldn't eat it. <laughs> Give it to us. Oh, again, we see that story playing out again and again and again in Scripture. Jesus brought justice to the Gentiles. He brought His truth to them, and they received it. The character of the servant then, he was pleasing to God. He was God's chosen one, the Messiah. God was uh, delighted in him. He was full of the Spirit, and he brought truth, justice to the Gentiles. Then he mentions the compassion of the servant. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. Now, when you look at that passage, you say, well, you know, Jesus preached a lot. And uh, some might bring that up to me and say, you see, Jesus didn't cry out. He didn't, he didn't holler loud. Uh, uh, no, 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 he got, he got loud a time or two. I promise you, he did. What he didn't do was he didn't stand in the streets and say, look at me. He wasn't out there drawing a lot of attention to himself. He spoke the truth. He performed incredible miracles. He let his message and his miracles uh, do that for him. And in fact, time and again, we've already seen it in the Gospel of Mark. We see him running from the limelight and trying to get away. He's not out there demanding that people worship him or fall down before him. He didn't come out with that spirit. But instead, he demonstrated how meek he was, how humble he was. That is the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. Describes then a bruised reed and a smoldering flax, which is an interesting kind of parable. A bruised reed is, is one that uh, you'd see a, a stalk of a plant that has bent over. And if you're an old man and carrying a pocket knife, what you want to do when you see that thing bent over like that is just reach out there and clip it off. Uh, break it off. Uh, you, you see that smoldering flax. What do you do with it? Psst. Put that thing out. I mean, the wind might catch it up and it burn the whole place down. Don't throw out that thing. What this is a parable of, what this is a story of, it shows us the compassionate nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he would come around people, he would find a lot of bent people. Bent over by the cares, by the troubles of life. 
That's, that's, that's all he has to deal with. If Jesus only came for per- perfect people, he would have a very small audience. And aren't you glad tonight that your Lord and my Lord comes to you bruised, bent, smoldering though you are, though I am. And he deals with us with compassion. Uh, he didn't break it off, make it worse. No, no. He, he, he's, in the, he's in the bruised reed and smoking flax business. And again, we are told then, he will bring forth justice for truth. He will treat people right. He will give people what they long for. And as we'll see in a moment, what they are looking for. The servant that God sends to us then is compassionate. He himself would say this to us. The Son of Man came not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I love how we're told that if we lack wisdom, we are to ask of the Lord who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not. When we go to God and say, God, I don't understand, God's not ever going to say to us, you big dummy. You big dummy. That's what it means to upbraid. Uh, God doesn't insult us when we come to him saying, God, I don't understand. God, I don't know what to do. Well, anybody ought to know what to do. Uh, when you lack wisdom, what do you do? You ask God. God is not going to put you down. God is not going to come at you. He's not going to convict you and talk about how ignorant you are and how stupid you are. No, God doesn't treat us that way. God is compassionate to us. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. He approaches us then with compassion. You think about that. It's a wonderful passage, a bruised reed. He will not break. And a smoking flax, he doesn't quench. That's your Jesus and mine. He loves us. And he longs to help us. The character of the servant. The compassion of the servant. Then notice the conviction of the servant. (laughs) This is wonderful too. Verse 4. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. He will not fail nor be discouraged. I don't mind telling you tonight there's a lot happening in our world and our culture right now that's discouraging to me. It is. I look at this pandemic. I mean, I thought we had the thing on the run and we were on the downhill slide and here it's coming back again. And like a lot of people have said it and I've said it too, I I don't know if I can do this again. You say, it's discouraging. We have to do all of this again. We have to go through all of this again. We may be saying that every year for until Jesus comes. I don't know. But that's just one thing. And out of all the things that we can look around at humanity and in our dealings with humanity, you and I know it. I know it. You know it. You all feel it. It's discouraging sometimes dealing with people. It is. God is never discouraged dealing with us. Part of that is, of course, He knows the outcome. He knows how things are going to turn out. And... uh, he knows some of them are hardened their hearts and they've rejected him and they're not ever going to see. He knows when that's happened, but he also knows when 
He knows how things are going to be. He knows when we're going to turn around. Uh, he knows it before we do. He's not discouraged. And he keeps on doing his work. And what is his work? Till he has established justice in the earth. And so though I look around and though you look around at a world in a mess. A mess. And we say, how can this ever be made right? I want to tell you tonight on the authority of Isaiah chapter 42 that Jesus Christ is going to make it right. That day is coming. He is not going to give up. And He alone has a plan to fix it all. Right there. He is going to establish justice in the earth. He is going to make things right. And the coastlands shall wait for his law. Yeah, I tell you, I really want that passage to apply to California and New York. I really do. Oregon, Washington. Enough said. I, I, I can't make that connection. It does apply to them, but not only to them. The Gentile people, that's what he's talking about. The, the island people, the people far from God in far-reaching places, in places they didn't even know were places. Isaiah didn't. God did. The coastland shall wait for his law. The conviction of the servant. Jesus knows what to do. He knows that what he is doing is right. He, is he has a plan. He is out to accomplish that plan. He's not going to stop. He's not going to get discouraged. Notice then the covenant, verse 5. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. And will hold your hand. I will keep you. And give you as a covenant to the people. As a light to the Gentiles. To open blind eyes. To bring out prisoners from the prison. Those who sit in darkness from the prison house. It is God who is the creator of the heavens and the earth who then is going to harness or put that incredible power in His chosen servant, Jesus Christ. And through Him then, He would work in all of us so that He could be a very present help to us in time of trouble so that He could give us the assurance, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. Where once you see the Gentiles were without a covenant. We are not without a covenant anymore. What is our covenant? Our covenant is Jesus Christ. Our covenant is in Him. So much so that the Bible tells us that all the promises of God are in Him, yes, and in Him, amen. That is, He's the one who gives them. He's the one who starts them and originates them. He's the one that finishes them and fulfills them. All of the promises of God are in Him, Jesus Christ, to us, yes, and amen. Our covenant is in Jesus Christ. Where before we were not a people, now we are. Where we before were separated from God, now we're not. 
What makes the difference? We've received Jesus Christ as our Savior. And He lives in us, and we are in Him. And because of that incredible truth then of our union with Christ, then we have a covenant with God. That covenant is the name of Jesus. Lastly then, see the consecration of the servant. Verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. That's one of my life verses, one of my key verses. I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory I will not give to another. Those are two things that everybody who serves Jesus needs to keep well in mind and heart. We need to remember who God is. It's not me. We remember to whom all the glory belongs. And that's Him. I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory I will not give to another nor my praise to carved images. One of the characteristics of the Isles of the Gentiles, the the Gentile peoples, wherever they were dispersed, was their deep devotion to idolatry. Travel to every island nation across this planet, including this one, when it was inhabited by Native Americans, they were spiritists. Their religion was spiritism. That's what we call it. What did that mean? It meant that they believed that the rocks had a spirit. The ground had a spirit. The trees had a spirit. Animals had a spirit. Everything has a spirit. Everything then was a part of deity. That is spiritism. It is the predominant religion of every island nation that we ever discovered. Every people separated. In In the European nations, they too were involved in idolatry. They had a more sophisticated form of idolatry, but in many ways it was the same because uh, they took, in many cases, the worst parts of humanity and they deified it and turned it into a god. It's a good way of, of dealing with war and all the horrors of war. Just make it a god named Mars and you've got, got it covered. Good way of dealing with sexuality. Just make it a god named Venus. Got it covered. On and on and on that story was told. But they did not realize that what they were doing was turning away from God and turning to idolatry. And what they were doing was turning from the light into pagan darkness. And they did not realize all of the evil, all of the depravity, all of the violence that would be unleashed in them when they changed the glory of the incorruptible God and made it like unto four-footed beasts or creeping things or idols they formed with their own hands. And so God looked out to all of these island peoples and He says, I'm the Lord, that is my name. I have created you. I have made you. You live by my power. I have given you breath. I have given you life. And you've taken my glory and give it to another. But that's going to change. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare, and before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, and His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea, and all that's in it, you coastlands, and you inhabitants of them, on every nation across this planet, God would perfect praise in the hearts and lives of people who believed in Him. That was going to happen. 
They were not going to be left in their pagan darkness. They were going to be consecrated unto the Lord so that they might worship Him and sing the Lord's song. This was the work of the servant to consecrate people so that they might fulfill their purpose. Because, you see, we were created for worship. We were fashioned for praise. But we can't do that unless we know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. It is the incredible work of the gospel, you see, that turns us from darkness into light, that turns us from death into life. Man is born with his back toward God. And it is only the work of the cross that calls to us so that we respond as the Spirit of God convicts us. And we understand that when Jesus died, he died for us. He was buried, but he didn't stay buried. He rose again, and whosoever would call upon him can be saved. If that's not your testimony tonight, it can be. It can be. You don't have to wait a moment. Not an instant. Because the Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When you do that then, God's not done with you. (laughs) He doesn't stamp an inspecting sticker from the famous Inspector 13 that says you pass inspection, everything's fine. No, you're you're not ready for retail market. Uh, No, God's not done with you. You're saved. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to heaven. Yeah, that's true. Oh, but God is still working in you. And in fact, He's going to work on you just like He's working on me all throughout our lifetime. And every lesson that we learn, every corner that we turn, every message that we receive, every point that that Scripture brings to our life just shows us something else that we can praise our God for. Every day that we live is another day that we can say, thank you, Lord. When we wake up in the morning, guess what we can say? Thank you, Lord. We can praise Him and worship Him and honor Him day after day after day. Take a deep old breath right now. So good and say, thank you, Lord. <laughs> Use it and say, thank you. Yeah, because He tells us, I, I, yeah, I've given you that breath. Yeah, I've given you life, given you breath. In the heart's end of all of these Gentile people, God is, God is out to perfect, to, pray, to perfect praise. The servant in Isaiah chapter 42, great messianic prophecy of God's work in the islands, in the Gentiles. God has expressed for us very plainly what His will is for humanity. God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You're watching at home tonight. That's God's will in your life. He wants you to be saved. And then He wants you to come to the knowledge of the truth. What did He send out His churches to do? To make disciples. How do we do that? By seeing people saved. Following Him in baptism. And then what? Teaching them all things whatsoever I have taught you. I've been studying the Bible for intently since I was 18 years old and began seminary. Uh, I don't feel like I've even scratched the surface yet. I've got a lot to learn. That's also true for you. The good news about my work is that I get to learn it, and then I get to preach it to you. And I enjoy both sides of that. I enjoy it a lot. 
And then we get to reaffirm it again and again and again because there's so much to learn and there's only one life. But oh, how much praise that brings to us all. Tonight, I hope you know Jesus as your Savior. Hope you followed Him in baptism. If you're in this service tonight, I hope that you realize we've got a little bit more to praise God for maybe than we thought about before we came in. That long before Israel ever turned away, long before Jesus was ever born in Bethlehem, God spoke to Isaiah and said, I'm sending my servant, and I'm going to tell you about it before it happens, long before it happens, so that when it happens, you can open up this passage and see it right there in black and white. I gave it to Isaiah. I wrote it down. I'm sending my servant, my anointed one, my chosen one, my only begotten son. He will not get discouraged. He has a work to do, and he'll do it. Aren't you glad our Lord and Savior is still at work in our world today? Let's stand together, please.